This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Washington, D.C. is about to mark the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in on June 17, 1972. But whatever happened to the infamous 18-and-a-half-minute gap in President Richard Nixon's tapes? That's the premise of the new indie film 18 and a Half, which makes its DC premiere tomorrow night at the landmark E Street Cinema with a filmmaker Q&A. I spoke with director Dan Mervish about making the film, as well as his journey from Omaha, Nebraska to Capitol Hill to founding the Slamdance Film Festival. We are being joined by the director of uh, 18 and a Half. Uh, nice, nice play on Fellini's 18 and a Half title. <laughs> but uh, I just watched it. But why don't you tell our listeners uh, the basic premise? Sure. It's about a, uh, a young woman in the Nixon White House in 1974 who gets a hold of the missing 18 and a half minute gap and wants to leak it to a reporter, but they run afoul of hippies, swingers, and nefarious forces out to get them. It is historical fiction, but uh, but definitely uses a lot of uh, real research on, on the Watergate backdrop to the whole thing. I love it. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners that are going to, you know, being here in DC and, you know, drive by the Watergate every day. So they're probably <laughs> some, some, you know, Nixon history junkies and all that stuff. So I'm sure they're going to love it. Um, how did you come up with it? I mean, it was uh, obviously um, it's you and Daniel Moya. Um, I mm -hmm. guess you, you share a story credit. Yeah. Um, did, did, did he, did he get, did he write the screenplay or did you guys write it together? Yeah. So he, yeah, he did, he did the line share of the screenplay and uh, cause I was busy you know, finishing up my last film. But um, but yeah, the story was kind of, um, you know, came about I'd been fascinating, fascinated by Watergate since I was a kid, you know, back when the Senate hearings, you know, uh, of, you know, were, were on TV wall to wall. And, um, and then I majored in history and political science. And, and I actually one of my professors was Thomas Eagleton, who had been uh, uh, McGovern's first running mate until he wasn't. Um, and then I worked in DC for a couple of years. I was a speechwriter for uh, Senator Tom Harkin. And so I just really love the whole DC, you know, political culture and have been thinking about Watergate for a long time. And, but th then this was kind of precipitated because the last um, uh, film I did called Bernard and Huey was written by Jules Pfeiffer, who was a great cartoonist, political cartoonist, won a Pulitzer Prize for that. Um, specifically about his cartoons about Nixon and Watergate. And, um, and, and that kind of inspired me uh, to do this film. And then we found this great location, um, the Silver Sands Motel, which uh, in the film is in St. Michael's, Maryland, but in real life is actually in, uh, in, uh, on the tip of Long Island. Ah, okay, okay. I, I was, <laughs> was going to ask about that. No, it's funny because 
Um, I, I, there was, you do sense a little bit of, um, I, I was wondering what your DC tie was because I knew yeah. what it said. You grew up in Wisconsin or whatever, but, um, it, watching the movie, you know, with some of the, the lines or the accents or Hey hun, or what, you know what I mean? Like, I was, <laughs> I was like, I was like, he, he has to know the area a little bit. And so that, that makes sense. Yeah. You, you were speaking yeah. Um, well, cool. Well, well, cool. No one would have known it was in, um, in long Island. It, it totally, <laughs> it totally plays man. <laughs> thanks, um, thanks. Well, tell me, um, t- tell me, um, about the casting really quick. And uh, there's so much of, you know, directing I want to go into with you because I geek out sure. on that stuff. But let's start with the, the casting. Um, faces people will remember, uh, you know, Willa Fitzgerald from Reacher and John mm-hmm. Magar. Is it Magaro? Is that how you Magaro, say? Magaro. Yeah. Because, man, I gotta say, first cow. He's in first cow. First cow. Yeah. It's, it's so underrated. Kelly Record should have been nominated for like everything that year. I loved yeah. it. <laughs> and, and she's the one. And she's the one who recommended him to me. So really, um, so how did that come up? I know I need that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know Kelly just a little bit, but um, we were considering John and I was like, hey, how is he to work with? And, and she's like, oh, he's great. You should cast him. I was like, all right, I'll take her word for it. Um, and Willa Fitzgerald, you know, she was recommended by uh, by another director friend, uh, Lucky McKee, um, as, as well as her agent. Um, and then, you know, and then she did the Reacher thing afterwards and really kind of kind of her career took off a little bit more after that. Um, and then people like Richard Kind are in it. Uh, Richard uh, was in my last film, so I kind of knew him. Uh, the great Vondi Curtis Hall uh, was recommended by his agent. Um, and then, and then we have some incredible voice talents. Um, yeah, tell uh, me, tell me. I'll, I'll just to break up the sound bites. Uh, tell me about the voices on the on. It's on the you know the infamous eighteen and a half minute tape. You recreate the tape, but tell us some famous voices. Uh, I don't know if you want to call it Easter egg, but if you listen closely <laughs> closely enough, you'll hear some famous voices on the tape. Sure. So it's it's uh, Ted Ramey as uh, General Al Haig. Um, it's John Cryer from uh, Two and a Half Men and Pretty in Pink. Um, he plays HR uh, uh, Bob. Bob Haldeman, and of course, Bruce Campbell uh, as the voice of Richard Nixon himself. I mean, those are nice, juicy little, a little <laughs> like extra treats where you're getting, I'm hearing it. I'm like, I recognize those, those voices. And how do I know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there you go. And, and even the name, I mean, it'll, any fans of, you know, all the presidents men or any of that, or, or just that grew up reading and, and watching the coverage of the Watergate. Well, you know, the names like Haldeman and everything. It's, it's, it's just a treat to hear all that. Um, well, cool. Well, I said, I wanted to go into some directing things. Um, the opening shot where you have, you know, you have your protagonist, um, you know, Willa Fitzgerald's character sitting in the car. I loved how you did it. I, it's you're like messing with us as viewers, <laughs> you know, even smart, literate, you know, cinema, viewers will be like wait a minute the, the car is clearly not moving like some some folks might even be be like you you like goat them into thinking oh that's like a bad green screen the car is not moving and then all of a sudden <laughs> you realize with the slow disclosure as sharp would say the slow disclosure of you realize she's just on a ferry <laughs> yeah so uh tell, tell, take me into the idea to do that were you intentionally trying to mess with our our senses there Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, cause I had taken that ferry from shelter Island where, where Pfeiffer lives to, uh, to Greenport, New York. And, um, and, and I noticed this bizarre sense you get of, is it, is it, you know, cause people sit behind the wheel of, a, of, a, of their cars and yet you're moving sideways and forward and it's, it's very unnatural. So yeah, that, that was definitely a, a way to kind of draw people into sort of, you know, we're going to be playing with your, your senses here and, and, uh, you know, dive right into the movie. 
Yeah, I love a movie where you can tell right from the beginning that you're in the hands of a strong director. And I know a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people probably don't don't care. They're more into the story or whatever. But I truly believe that that stuff sort of works subconsciously, even if you're not aware of it. And then if you are aware of it as sort of like a mise en scène cinephile guy, like you, you or Yao, you really, really. I don't know. You, I think there's more. I buy into the movie. I'm like, oh, let's see what this guy's doing. Like, there's, yeah. I know, I notice like uh, some other cool touches, like when you're. Um, uh, when she comes up to the motel counter and you see your face like in a reflection on something on the counter, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of cool, a lot of cool things that, that you had. Did you have like an overall, um, you know, directing approach in terms of like the, the camera sort of sitting back, sort of lurking, sort of pushing in when they're listening to the tape, pulling out? I mean, in terms of like a general directing uh, approach to it, did you want more like a, like an observing sort of camera? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I definitely believe in, in most of my films, but especially this one, the camera is a character We, you know, the audience is pulled in. Connie is our, uh, you know, everything is kind of through her perspective, but it, but the camera is still kind of our, our own, you know, uh, subjective point of view. Um, but my feeling, and, and this is what I told everyone on the cast and crew from the writing, the actors and music is, is we were only going to use creative techniques that could have been done and would have been done in 1974. So there's no drone shots. There's no steady right. cam because I was 76. Um, you know, so there's a lot of zooms in there because that was really, you know, uh, that was very common in that era. Um, uh, and, and I just like that. I just like that as a style. Um, but everything to the the musical instruments um, were all period appropriate. We do have a lot of bossa nova music, as you can <laughs> tell in the film, all original. Um, you know, I wrote the lyrics of the songs. My my buddy Luis Guerra is our composer, um, and uh, you know, live horn section, um, and uh, you know, the costumes. Uh, we had a great uh, costume designer, Sarah Kogan, who who collects old. Um, original uh, uh, patterns, paper patterns, and then she would make new costumes from those old patterns. And then just a, a fantastic production design across the board. Oh yeah, for, for sure, it all works. And I'm sure it was fun, you know, going yeah. back and, and putting <laughs> yourself in the, not only the seven, early seventies period production design stuff, but like you said, I think it's really cool that even like you even capped it off on what what directing technique camera techniques you would use you mm -hmm. like you just said the the steadicam wasn't until 1976 with what was it rocky and bound for glory yeah rocky yeah what was the other one there was like three i think that used it already. yeah there were a couple that came out that year but anyway i love that you're saying like you you tried to only use camera techniques before that i love that i really geek out about that um well very cool very cool in terms of like the way the story unfolds um yeah i don't i don't want to spoil anything but i guess how <laughs> do i say generally um in general it's terms weird yeah well that's one way of putting it <laughs> talk about how you and your writer go about crafting um some things that might seem like uh, humorous or amusing interludes where they're meeting other characters like particularly the the you know affectionate couple that you know the right. monty curtis hall right. captain curtain um uh couple and there's uh, there's the other characters too but um talk about how you you that as a filmmaker you you on this uh, on the surface you're trying to create something that seems like a humorous interlude but that it they, that can then come back and pay off later like that's an art right there <laughs> well thank you thanks um yeah no i mean we really all just tried to play around with the tone you know it's 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 a thriller but it's also it's a comedy um and, and you know connie's character you know the character of connie just kind of goes through the looking glass and meets all these weird people um you know the hippies the swingers and, and you know one-eyed uh, uh jack you know richard kind um and, and yeah but she 
but I think the key was that Willa Fitzgerald's performance and John Magaro really play it straight the whole time. And that's, I think, where the, the humor comes from. Yep, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I encourage folks to check it out. When is it um, uh, before we I want to ask some other stuff about, you know, your, your past films and the rest of your career and slam dance and everything like that. But just um, before, you know, while we're still talking 18 and a half, um, where tell us about the, the screening again. It's is the is the sneak peek thing on June 1st. Is that something that our that's, listeners will be able to go to? Or absolutely. They, they... Yeah, that's open to the public. That's going to be at the landmark East Street uh, Theater uh, in D.C. in the district. Um, and that's, I think it's seven or seven 30, uh, on June 1st, Wednesday. And, and I'm going to be doing the Q and a along with my, uh, writing partner, Daniel Moya and, um, uh, our executive, one of our executive producers, Paul Orzelak, who's in DC. Um, and we may have some special guests, academics or journalists, uh, specifically talking about Watergate afterwards. So we're, we're working on that as well. And then starting June 3rd, it opens at the, um, the majestic, uh, the regal majestic silver spring. Um, and then there's also going to be one screening at the um, at the Alamo Draft House in um, uh, in Arlington, uh, the Arlington Draft House, awesome. um, so on that see, Sunday, I think. So you can see it in D.C. on the first with your Q and A, or you can mm -hmm. see it uh, later that weekend, I guess, on June third in Silver Spring, and then also over in Arlington. See, so that's cool. Yeah. You hit the the D.C., Maryland, Virginia trifecta. That's absolutely cool. very <laughs> smart. <laughs> Um, well, I'd love to, if you have a second, go a little into, you know, your journey as a filmmaker in general, your, your sort of career, maybe, maybe we'll provide some fodder that'll spark some questions that our listeners will ask you at the Q and a, if they listen to this. <laughs> so, yeah. um, just tell me, I know we mentioned earlier, you grew up in, in Wisconsin, but how did you discover filmmaking? Like, were you, did you always love movies as a kid or, you know, how, how did that happen? Um, yeah, I, uh, well, actually I was born in Wisconsin, but pretty much grew up in Nebraska and Omaha and, okay. um, yeah, I mean, there, there wasn't there weren't a lot of art houses uh, to see, you know, independent film there. Um, but then when I went to college in St. Louis, that's really where I got into. Um, I took a Super 8 class and really loved that. And then was involved with the student group that showed films on campus. Um, I did some summer classes at UCLA. Uh, but then I had done an internship in D.C. my junior year and really fell in love with D.C. And so. Uh, when I graduated, came, came out and uh, interned for a little while and wrote for the Washington Monthly Magazine uh, for a few months and, th and then got this job working for Harkin. Um, and actually, even doing as a speechwriter in the Senate, we recorded a lot of the, the speeches on, on, on video in the basement of the Capitol. There's a couple different recording studios there. Mm. And so that kind of, you know, not, not that those were like super creative videos, but, uh, you know, I would hang out with the guys in the booth and they're like, yeah, dude, you should apply to film school. <laughs> and and I knew, you know, look, I, I knew in D.C. if you by the time you hit 30, someone just gives you a three piece suit and a law degree. So, I, you know, by <laughs> osmosis, and I was like, you know, I, let me let me go back to this film thing and see how that turns out. And um, and and so then I went to USC film school. I love it. I love it. And that's cool. I'm glad that you took their advice or we would have missed, <laughs> we would have missed that on these movies. So, uh, well, cool. So I know, um, well, it makes sense now that you mentioned you grew up in, in Omaha because that was, uh, you know, your early film in, in 95 yep. was called Omaha. Um, I read somewhere in, in your bio, I am to be somewhere along the way, something, something I was reading, uh, was saying you were mentored by Altman when you were making that. What do you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My first film Omaha, the movie. Yeah. Cause I, I ran into Robert Altman's grandson, Dana Altman, who lives in Omaha. So he became my producing partner still is one of my producing partners cool. even on 18 and a half and uh and then his grandfather robert altman kind of mentored us on that on that first film and you know we both you know i certainly got to know him and and learned a lot of techniques that i still to this day incorporate like uh, miking 
actors individually and, and recording, letting them do overlapping, you know, dialogue. That's definitely come straight from, from Altman himself. I was just going to, that's the first <laughs> thing I think about. And, you, and you, you said it and we're on, we're sharing the brain. You said it. Um, we, yeah. um, yeah, the, the miking multiple actors where he used that. He it was so genius the way, uh, I guess what in mash and McCabe Nashville. Miller yeah. and Nat Nashville. Yep. I love Nashville. Gosh, Je we were just talking to Jeff Goldblum about him starting oh, with yeah. that oh, about right. Nashville. The, what is he? The, the silent motorcycle man or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, the player there's gosh, there's so many, so, but that's, I, I, I'm, I'm tangenting, but that's so great that you had Altman and, and his grandson as uh, you know, as a mentor and producing partner. That's fantastic. Um, cool. And then, and then I saw that you veered into some musicals too. Uh, so it's, it's not just, yeah. you know, all, all white house, you know, gritty, <laughs> could have gone the, the gritty, I don't know, all the president type movies right away, but instead you did some musicals open house in 04 half empty in yep. 06, uh, remind our listeners what, what those musical projects were. About. Well, the, yeah. Open house was a real estate musical, um, with, uh, Sally Kellerman who'd been in mash, uh, and Anthony Rapp from rent. Um, and yeah, real low budget, but uh, but we had a lot of fun with that one. And then it's a long story, but that was eligible for an Oscar for best original musical. But in order to activate that category, there needed to be five eligible films and we could only find three others. So oh, we're like, no. well, screw it. Let's just make another one real quick. And so we did. We made we went to Germany and made a bad German musical because we couldn't take votes away from our, our first film because three of the films would be eligible. Anyway, so we made a a bad German musical in nine days. It was like a real life version of the producers. And that was this film half empty. And then, um, and then tried to get the Academy to activate the category and then they didn't, but then they rewrote the rules. They have, I call it the Mervish rule in there that now says we can activate the category if we so choose to activate the category, but it's still on the books and they've just still never activated it. Well, that, that's what I was going to say as a huge Oscar nut myself. I, I, <laughs> I haven't seen that category yep. of best original musical. So yeah, I, I like how you were trying to jumpstart it um, with two of your own movies <laughs> competing against each other. <laughs> yeah. Why not, man? Why not? Why not? But stay. I'm sure it was a really cool, rewarding experience to get to do it was, yeah. musical. It was fun. Um, and then similar, kind of in the same vein of you, know, you think musicals, you think Broadway. Well, you did it. You'd adapted a, a off Broadway play, not a musical, mm -hmm. but a, a, a play between us in in 2012. Right. Uh, remind us what that was about. Yeah, that was uh, two couples yelling and throwing things at each other. And it was a great <laughs> off. It was a great off Broadway play by uh, Joe Hortua, and he and I collaborated on the adaptation of that, and I directed it. And you know, for the film, we had. Julia Stiles and David Harbour and Melissa George and Tay Diggs. And um, I mean, that one's a pretty heavy drama. We thought it was supposed to be a bit of a dark comedy, but nobody laughed. So we just went told everyone it was a drama. Go, but, a uh, drama. but it was, <laughs> you know, but it was great. I mean, fantastic performances by some of, you know, the world's best actors. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun to work on. Awesome. And I mean, we'd be here all day if we went into all your projects, but <laughs> maybe let's hit one more and we'll bring, then we'll bring it back around 18 and a half. I guess more recently, you mentioned it earlier, Bernard and Huey, I guess it came yeah. out in 2017. Uh, you worked with the acclaimed, you know, Pulitzer uh, cartoonist writer, uh, Jules Pfeiffer. Um, I guess Pfeiffer also wrote Carnal Knowledge Carnal and you know, Knowledge, has yeah. some really cool credits uh, yeah, yeah. predating this too. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, just what was it, what was it like uh, working with Pfeiffer? I mean, that, that's, uh, that's, that's, you probably learned a lot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, he was, a, he was, you know, such, he is still an, an amazing figure. And, um, you know, this was a script he had written 30 years earlier that had been lost and it took oh. us like a year and a half just to find the script, 
Well, what do you mean he lost? Like he put, he did the it, proverbial, put it in a drawer and then everybody forgot. About pretty it. much. Yeah. He'd been divorced a couple of times. Everything was in storage. He kind of lost it, but we eventually found a handwritten copy of it at the, um, Smith, uh, uh, not the Smithsonian at the uh, library of Congress had it in their archives and he had forgotten that he had donated some of his archives to the library of Congress. So we, I sent a buddy of mine in DC there and we got a copy of it. Um, and, uh, and then we were like, Oh yeah, well now let's make this thing, you know? So I'm picturing uh, go with me here. It's when you mentioned the library of Congress, I'm picturing you and, and, and Pfeiffer sitting there in the <laughs> library and you know, you probably know where I'm going with this and the camera's pulling up like, in, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> all the presidents, man. There you are like, oh, I was found it. <laughs> yeah, it really it was like that. It was because it, it was it's just kind of buried in there, you know. But the but they've got some fantastic archives there, and uh, yeah. and most people don't know about it. My one problem with that shot, and I, I don't want to say problem because that's one of the best movies ever, and yeah. cool is amazing, but. I, I wish they would wish they could have had time to just stay with the shot going all the way up. I think they use like some 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 dissolves. Yeah, they do. The yeah, up. there's two dissolves in there. Yeah, I know. But it's such a beautiful shot and, yeah. and beautifully constructed. It really is. I'm sure there was a producer or studio head somewhere along the way. <laughs> it's too long. You got to. Right. Um, which I guess that will segue back to the mid 70s techniques that <laughs> that you right. use for for 18 and a half. Right. Um, right. Well, very cool. Very cool. Well, that brings us to present day. Uh, and before we run, we should tell our listeners that you're also the founder, or I guess, is it co-founder of co-founder, the, Slam, yeah. the Slam Dance Film Fest? Uh, obviously, you know, take on the name of, of Sundance, but, but you know, what made it different from Sundance? What was sort of the mission of, you know, hey, here's Sundance, but here we are right. as well? Well, we, we started it in the mid 90s and it was at a time when when sort of independent film was going Hollywood was, um, mm-hmm. you know, bigger budgets and, and, and Miramax had just become part of Disney and Fine Line had become part of uh, Warner Brothers and Sundance was kind of going along. They're like, woohoo, we're going Hollywood. Um, and so there was they left behind the, the niche of the first time directors low budgets with no no big names actors in it and uh and we kind of stepped in and kind of filled that that niche that was the original you know kind of purpose of 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 Sundance and we've now been doing it for 28 years or however many years it's been and and through that we've shown the first films of Bong Joon-ho uh uh Christopher Nolan the Russo brothers uh Ryan Johnson uh, the late Lynn Shelton, uh, the Safdie brothers, uh, uh, Sean Baker, all kinds of interesting people. And um, so we, we just keep doing it uh, right next to Sundance across the street from them. That's so cool. And and yeah, like you said, I mean, there, there became a point where Sundance uh, wasn't really <laughs> as independent as it used to be. And so that's kind of cool that you do it across the street from it. Um, and the, you you rattled off some really legendary filmmakers that got their that got helped get their start at your festival. But is there could you just for my purposes for the radio, you know, how, so I have like an anecdote. Do, could can you share a story on one of those like when Bong Joon-ho or Christopher Nolan just just pick one or two and uh, talk about the, that movie and that experience like oh my god I, I found that on the ground floor and I was just blown away kind of a story yeah I mean Christopher Nolan we showed his first film following which was a little low budget film he'd done in London and and he showed up and there were 14 people in the audience and he's like oh hello why, why is nobody here and I was like dude because you got to pass out some flyers you know go <laughs> go down to Kinko's, make some flyers and, and pass them out up and down the street. And he did. And he did. And, you know, the next screening he had there were a lot more people, I think, including Roger Ebert. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, all these guys, you know, and, and that's pre memento, right? This is pre. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It was a year before memento. So um, they just, uh, yeah, everybody starts out small and gets bigger. 
um, you know, Ryan Johnson was a PA production assistant on Omaha the Movie on my first film. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So he's when doing he's okay. Yeah, I think he's doing all right. <laughs> well, that's really cool. I love to hear all the little tie-ins. And then I guess, um, I guess just sort of in closing, then how is how is running that festival um sort of influenced or helped you as a filmmaker? Um, you know, not not only the the cast and crew connections like you're talking about, Ryan Johnson worked on your movie, but um just I, it's got to help just seeing quality submissions and and I guess and not so quality as well. But, you know, just seeing what's good, the, the latest you know crop yeah. every year, it's, it's got to help you as a director, too, and a writer. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's it's great being influenced by by younger and other, you know, filmmakers from from around the world and seeing sort of what the latest techniques and, and you know, both creatively, but also on, in terms of distribution, things like that. Um, and, and and it's where I've met a lot of my collaborators over the years. A lot of my cinematographers are, are people that I met there. So great. And then I guess yeah. I guess final seconds, if there's if there's anyone listening to this in, in our area or heck, they could listen to it wherever around the country or world. Um, what's your advice to them if there's a young filmmaker, a young screenwriter, you know, that, that is submitting to Slamdance or, or whatever or about to make a movie or if they want to go into film school, whatever. Like, what, is there like a certain advice you have have for folks like, you know, like to tell tell, you know, write what you know or whatever. You know what I mean? Like what what's your what's your canned answer for when people come saying, how should I get into this? Marry well. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for, you know, taking the detour into that and then connecting it back around to 18 and a half. It's all of a piece in my mind. So I appreciate it. And uh, congrats on on the movie. Um, again, everyone, it's called 18 and a half. Dan Mervish, thank you. This was so much fun. Is there anything else you want you want to add uh, before? No, we no, that's it, Jason. Thank you so much for having me on. And you know, I think this is a film uh, that people in DC are going to appreciate one way or another. But it's you know, but it's not it's not a historical documentary. It's it's fiction, <laughs> so it's a, it's a fun ride. But I uh, but I hope people take it with us. Right, just enough reality and just enough fiction for a, a yeah. good time. So, <laughs> all right, yeah. cool, Dan Mervish. Thanks so much. This was great. All right, thanks, man. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.